There's an old joke. Um, two elderly women are at a Catskill Mountain resort, <clears throat> and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. Well, that's essentially how I feel about life, full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness, and it's all over much too quickly. Annie Hall is the sixth film, written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1977. Woody Allen stars as Alvy Singer. He has broken up with Annie, played by Diane Keaton, and he's looking back on his whole life to see if he can figure out how he got here. What do you say about Annie Hall? It's been overanalyzed to death. Every frame has been considered, every scene has been parodied, and every line has been printed on a t-shirt. But hey, let's talk about one of the greatest films ever made one more time. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast from me, the creator of the Woody Allen Pages website. This week, episode 8, we look at 1977's Annie Hall, where it started, how it was made, and how it changed everything for Woody Allen. Of course, spoilers are everywhere, so go watch the film first. I feel that life is, is divided up into the horrible and the miserable. Those are the two categories, you know? The, uh, the horrible would be like, um, I don't know, terminal cases, you know, and blind people, yeah. and cripples. I don't know how they get through life. It's amazing to me, you know? And the miserable is everyone else. That's, that's, so, so when you go through life, you should be thankful that you're miserable. Because that's you're very lucky to, to be miserable. Woody Allen had no ambition to make a big step up from the films that he had made so far when he approached making a sixth film. What would be Annie Hall started as just the next step on a journey that he was taking. He had made five fairly critically acclaimed, moderately successful slapstick comedies. In each film, he was becoming a better director and finding people he wanted to work with consistently. His films had kind of been the same so far. Funny first, script and plot second. They were based around a premise, the future or a South American country in revolution. And then jokes on top. He shot more than he needed and would find the film in the edit, depending on how the performances worked out. And so it was that Alan approached his sixth film with the same idea. More jokes, more disconnected sketches, more of the same. The premise this time would be a murder mystery set in Victorian England, and after working with his friend Mickey Rose for the first two films, he chose Marshall Brickman to help him write it. Brickman was a TV comedy writer who had a previous life as a musician. Both aspects drew Alan to him. Alan liked funny people, and he started playing music with Brickman. Soon, the two became friends and collaborators. They were actually going to make the murder mystery Alan's fifth film to follow Sleeper. As the pair came up with more and more ideas, Alan felt stuck and changed track. He knocked out the script for Love and Death instead and managed to make it first. When that was done, he was back onto the murder mystery. He looked at Boston as a stand-in for Victorian England, but decided very quickly that it would be easier to just film in New York and in contemporary times. Interesting that Alan still hadn't considered New York his default shooting location yet. Back to the murder mystery. So who was killed and who investigates? Alan had a victim, Professor Levy. He's a neighbor who died by apparently committing suicide but our characters know Levy. He's a philosophy professor who is an optimist. That sweet old man would never kill himself. Something was up and our heroes start to investigate. The origin of those heroes would lay elsewhere. Alan in the 70s really wanted to write a novel. He explored a couple of ideas and completed at least one novel that he sent to friends, which he ultimately rewrote as a script and filmed as anything else. Another was about relationships and starred Alvy Singer and his various ex-lovers. The novel opened with a monologue from Alvy, talking about his breakups and introducing himself. It was a little like the classic introduction to J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. That monologue remained intact all the way to the final film. Annie and I broke up and I, I still can't get my mind around that. You know, I, I keep sifting the pieces of the relationship through my mind and, and examining my life and trying to figure out where did the screw up come, you know? And So for whatever reason, Alan decided to mix the novel with his murder mystery. 
and put Alvie and his girlfriend Annie in the murder mystery. Alan and Brickman would walk around New York and Central Park discussing ideas. Alan would then write it up and send it to Brickman for comments, and the walks would continue. Somewhere along the line, the novel essentially ate the murder mystery, and the mystery was abandoned after much of it was written. Alan famously took a lot of it and made it into Manhattan Murder Mystery in 1993. The Professor Levy character was added to Crimes and Misdemeanors in 1989. There's more of this early script that ended up in other films, but we'll get to that later. Ultimately, where Alan and Brickman got to with the script was another fish-out-of-water comedy. This time, it was an Alan type in New York going through his relationships, but we see what's going on in his mind. Alan and Brickman wrote a whole bunch of sketches and strung them together, hanging them off a thread about Alvy and his exes. There was a trip to the underworld to meet the devil. There was an awkward dinner with a girlfriend's racist grandmother, or Alvy talking to strangers on the street to get relationship advice. It's actually amazing to discover the original idea and the approach for Annie Hall wasn't that much different from how Alan approached his so-called early funny ones. They had a fun through line and lots of sketches strung together. There wasn't much of an ending, just like his other scripts at this point, but that's okay. They would find the story in the edit. But there were two main innovations in Alan's screenwriting. One was the breadth and range of the sketches. They were starting to be funnier, show wilder influences, and become more cinematically ambitious. Innovation number two was Alan using his own life for material. It wasn't really obvious to his fans, and he didn't really talk about it that much before Annie Hall, but Alan was a huge cinephile. He loved films and loved going to the cinema as a kid and dreamt of being a filmmaker. He enrolled into film school at New York University, but famously dropped out. You can see Alan's love of cinema in his early films, but they were references more than influences. Alan was a product of his upbringing of New York in the 50s and the 60s. New York City was full of cinemas, probably more cinemas per square kilometre than any other part of the world. And they showed more than just the commercial stuff. Alan loved the arthouse stuff and the European stuff. Filmmakers he would talk about forever like Igmar Bergman, Federico Fellini, Francois Truffaut and Billy Wilder. Then Alan became a comedy writer and then a comedian himself. He wrote plays and screenplays then starred in other people's films. His managers convinced him to do all this, as each step would lead to him being a filmmaker. He made those early films that relied on just Alan's comedy skill as he learnt the craft of making cinema. But now, with the film that would be Annie Hall, he would bring those influences together. Oh, I'm at a big lumberjack. Jesus, this guy's pathetic. Look at him mincing around, boy. Thinks he's real cute. Do you want to throw up? If only I had the nerve to do my own jokes. You can see so much of Truffaut in the early sequence with the kids in the school. It's the drab colours and the street-level star that resembles Truffaut's wonderful 1959 film, The 400 Blows. The 400 Blows was semi-autobiographical, and sometimes I wonder if Alan started being semi-autobiographical because Truffaut did it, that it's all just Alan playing around with another genre. Alan threw linear narrative out the window with a nod to the French New Wave. He had played around with French New Wave's erratic storytelling in Bananas back in 1971. Now he was using it with style. Then there's Bergman. Swedish director Igmar Bergman is Alan's favourite filmmaker, and there's so much Bergman here. Bergman loved playing around with magical realism, and the way Annie Hall breaks into some impossible silliness is Alan's take on a Bergman twist. Bergman usually does it for beauty, Alan is doing it for the jokes. The scenes where characters walk into and actually talk to the past is a very Woody Allen take on Bergman. Look at you, you, you're such a clown. I look pretty. Well, yeah, you always look pretty, but that guy with you. Acting is like an exploration of the soul. It's very religious, uh, like a, a kind of liberating consciousness. It's like a visual poem. <laughs> is he kidding with that crap? Oh. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think I know exactly what you mean when you say religious. You do? 
Oh, come on. I mean, I was uh, younger. Hey, that was last year. Bergman is also an influence when it comes to the music, or lack thereof. Bergman tended to avoid music as a cheap way of getting emotions. Alan tried to follow and would do so for this and interiors. There is very little music in Annie Hall outside of Diane Keaton singing, but he would back out of that thinking completely by Manhattan in 1979. There are so many other examples, and there's plenty of film classes to teach this stuff, but the point I want to make is Alan was using his cinematic influences better and in more obvious ways in Annie Hall. They were now part of the storytelling. Alan was also throwing out cinematic conventions. He was growing more confident and didn't give a damn about the rules. It's easy to break the fourth wall in a novel where you read the character's thoughts. Alan thought nothing about bringing that into the script, and now Annie Hall is one of the most celebrated examples of breaking the fourth wall in all of cinema. There's no better example of Alan mixing his European arthouse love with his lack of care with convention than the subtitle scene. Albie and Annie are on the balcony, making small talk, while the subtitles tell a very different story. Alan spent years watching subtitled films. It's an aesthetic that he's used to, but here he rewrites the rules, making the subtitles a mainline into our character's thoughts. So did you do those photographs in there or what? Yeah, yeah, I sort of dabble around, you know. They're, they're wonderful, you know, they have a, they have a quality. Well, I, I, I would like to take a serious photography course in Photography is interesting because, you know, it's a, it's a new art form and a, a set of aesthetic criteria have not emerged yet. Aesthetic criteria? You mean whether it's a good photo or not? It's pretty clear that the women in the film were based on the women Alan had known. Alison Porchnik has many similarities to Harlene Rosen, Alan's first wife. In a scene that was shot but never released, Porchnik, played by Carol Kane, plays a cello and Rosen was a piano player. They met young and their marriage floundered. Alan's late night panic attacks and his existential dread and unhappiness is similar to Alan's recollection of his first marriage in his memoir. He was basically a miserable git. You, you're like New York Jewish left-wing liberal intellectual Central Park West Brandeis University with the socialist summer camps and the, the father with the Ben Sean drawings, right? And they really, you know, strike-oriented kind of... Uh, stop me before I make a complete imbecile of myself. No, that was wonderful. I love being reduced to a cultural stereotype. Right, I'm a big, you know, but for the left. Robin, the second wife, played by Janet Margolin, is a little like Alan's second wife, Louise Lasser. Although Lasser was funny and an actress in her own right, and she appeared in Alan's earlier films. She was more sophisticated and outgoing than Alan, who just wanted to stay home and watch sports. Alan would really write about this time with Lassa in the film Anything Else. What is so fascinating about a group of pituitary cases trying to stuff a ball through a hoop? What is fascinating is that it's physical. You know, it's one thing about intellectuals. They prove that you can be absolutely brilliant and have no idea what's going on. Then there is Annie. There's no point denying Annie is anything other than based on Diane Keaton. Annie is one of her nicknames and her real last name was Hall. It seems like a bigger deal now because it ended up being the film's title, but Alan did this sometimes. Like how he named the character in Small Time Crooks May because he had Elaine May in mind. Alan and Keaton met and dated in the 60s and had broken up by the mid-70s and before she and Alan really had any major roles together on screen. But she was a big influence on Alan and until Sun Yi Previn, probably the love of his life. Alan gets lots of credit for writing great female roles and Alan credits that to his relationship with Keaton and surely any list of great Woody Allen female roles would have Annie on it, probably at the top. Both Diane Keaton and Annie Hall were small town girls who moved into the big city. Both of them sang. Both had a brother who suffers from mental problems. And both wanted to be great and moved to LA, leaving someone behind. There were apparently other elements in the original draft, and it was far more about Alvy. Annie was just one of the strands. 
The rest was very much Alvy, a Woody Allen type, going from strange sketch to strange sketch. Alvy would be based on Allen himself as much as Annie was based on Diane Keaton, although Allen would later lament that people thought he actually lived under the roller coaster at Coney Island. But he did grow up in Brooklyn and he wrote for other comics before getting into stand up. Alvy's journey ends with him writing a play, a more serious play than Allen had written by this point, but it follows Allen's journey nonetheless. Beyond the superficial similarities, Alan's worldview is on show here, in a way that he hadn't done before. Audiences knew Alan was a bit of a neurotic, but if you listen to his stand-up and you see his early films, he's the competent, above-it-all smartass. Or at least he believes he is, even when he gets beaten up. Here, he paints Alvy as a bit more of a sophisticated character, three-dimensional with anxieties and flaws. He's undecided, confused, and lost at the crossroads. And let's face it, unlike the leading men you would find in films of the 60s. Alvy was an unconventional leading man, adding another to a memorable series of unconventional leading men starting to dominate Hollywood. See Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate, or Al Pacino in The Godfather, or Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. There are so many good moments in this film, but in terms of Alvy, I can't get past the scene where he rewrites his history with Annie into that new play. When he tells us that he knows what it is, it's his first play. This is him coping and you'll just have to bear with him. It's this kind of emotional grey area and direct honesty that hits home. What do you want? It was my first play. You know, you, you know how you're always trying to get things to come out perfect in art because uh, it's real difficult in life. In his early films, there's barely a second that isn't designed to elicit a laugh. Here, Alan was willing to sacrifice a few laughs to bring a different feeling, but the film was still packed with ideas. Every scene was filled with references, super-fast dialogue, and this frenetic energy especially Alvy and Annie, who talk super fast and are just sparking off each other. You're not going to give up your own apartment, are you? Of course. Yeah, but, 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 but why? Well, I'm, in, I'm moving in with you, that's why. Yeah, but you, you got a nice apartment. I have a tiny apartment. I know it's small. That's right, it's got bad plumbing and bugs. Yeah, all right, granted, it has bad plumbing and bugs, but you, you say that like it's a negative thing. You, you know, bugs are, are... Entomology is a rapidly growing field. You don't want me to live with you. How, how, I don't want you to live with me. How, whose idea was it? Mine. Yeah. Was it, it was yours, actually, but uh, <clears throat> I approved it immediately. I guess you think that I talked you into something, huh? No. What? what you, I, you, we live together. We sleep together. We eat together. Jesus, you don't want it to be like we're married, do you? How is it any different? It's different because you keep your own apartment. Because, you know, it's there. We don't have to go to it. We don't have to deal with it. But it's like a, a, a free-floating life raft that we know that we're not married. That little apartment is $400 a month, Alvy. That place is $400 a month? Yes, it is. It's, it's got bad plumbing and bugs. But there are places where it slows down, which brings real contrast. There are the truly romantic scenes, like on the pier where Annie and Alvy share their feelings for each other. You know, I like you. I really, I really do like you. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you love me? That's do, a key I, question. Yeah, I know you've only you know, known me a short while. But. Well, I sort of, I think that's sort of, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you love me? I mean, I, love is... is too weak a word for I, I love you. You know, I loathe you. I, I love you. No. With two Fs, yes. I, I have to invent. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah. Don't you think I do? I don't know. More importantly, Alan wasn't just working on a surface level with simple jokes that made you laugh and nothing else. There's the subtle joke in the Los Angeles part where Alvy thinks he's sick and he can't eat. But he slowly starts to eat once he learns he doesn't have to go to an awards show. It's not a laugh out loud joke, but it's clever. And it's a joke that says so much more about the character. It's Alan becoming a great writer. 
using subtext, irony, and more. Take the spider scene. It's one of Alan's super long takes. Keaton goes from coy to crying. And the bit that gets to me is when Annie asks if anyone was at Alvy's when she called, and Alvy lies. It's harmless. It doesn't matter. And he does it to spare Annie, who he loves. It's such a human decision, but it starts this second part of their relationship on a lie. It's so full of subtext, and Alan doesn't do anything to highlight it. He just throws it in. I did it. I killed him both. I, what's the matter? What are you, what are you sad about? You, you, what, what you want me to do? Capture him and rehabilitate him? Oh, don't go, okay, please. What do you mean, don't go? What do you, what, what, what's the matter? What, are you expecting termites? What's the matter? Uh, I don't know. I miss you. Oh, Jesus, really? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Alvy? What? Was there somebody in your room when I called you? What do you mean? I mean, was there another? I thought I heard a voice. No, I had the radio on. Yeah? I'm sorry, the television. The television. I had the television set. I was watching that. You know, watching yeah. Not that this film isn't packed with laughs regardless. Many of them have been parodied to death, referenced in other films, and used as names of books and essays. The Dead Shark. I Forgot My Mantra. Brooklyn is not expanding. Such small portions. We need the eggs. La-di-da, la-di-da. There's at least a dozen more. A lot of the humour is situational. There was a scene written where Alan played basketball with philosophers. Another was a parody of 50 suburban monster films, but instead of the blob, it was a Jewish family. It's a parody of the animated Disney classic Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Alan brought all his influences into the script. There's a lot of Jewishness. There's psychoanalysis and sex. There's parents and death. There's that long section making fun of Los Angeles. And there's even a few shots at fame. Alan would later make films that focused on just one or two of these ideas, but here, he was trying to get them all into this one. There's some wonderful payoffs within the sketches. Alvy's habit of using bumper cars to work out his aggression comes back when he's in California and he loses Annie again. Or the way that Alvy suggests Annie should go to college to meet interesting professors and then she meets and falls for a professor. It brings structure to a film that seems to jump all over the place. And Alan was just full of ideas. In musical terms, it was like Bob Dylan circa Blonde on Blonde or the Beatles circa The White Album an artist with an overflow of creative power. He wrote more than he needed, and like a rambling double album, proceeded to record them all. There's so many themes explored. Of course, there's love and relationships, which Alan sums up so well with the egg joke. Throughout the film, Alan seems to pit open-heartedness with closed-heartedness. I think it's odd that Woody was 40-something by the time this film came out. Brickman reckons that Alan put a lot of his feelings about turning 40 into the film, but he's also looking back. There is something very young adult about this film. The journey in your 20s trying to make it as something. Annie in particular is trying to be a singer and is lonely in the big city. Alvy is lonely in the big city when Annie is in California. That ache of trying to meet people. It's a wonderful capture of those mid-twenties when you're trying to find yourself. You know, lately the strangest things have been going through my mind because I turned 40 and I guess I'm going through a life crisis or something. I don't know. I, I, and I'm not worried about aging. I'm not one of those characters, you know. I, although I'm balding slightly on top. That's about the worst you can say about me. I, um, I think I'm going to get better as I get older. You know, I think I'm going to be the, the balding, virile type, you know, as opposed to, say, the um, distinguished grey. But the strongest element for me in the film is memory. This isn't a story told in order, it's a story told and remembered. Even one of the key songs used in the film is Seems Like Old Times, which is sung by Diane Keaton. We know Alan likes to use songs where the lyrics echo the themes, and a song about remembering the past with those rose-tinted glasses is right on the money. All those fantastic scenes are how Alvy remembers the events. We get it right from the beginning, 
the house under the roller coaster at Coney Island. There is no house, just the memory that it felt that way. That memory element makes the film incredibly intimate, and all the filmmaking tricks help that intimacy. Alvi breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to us. Alvi lets all his anxieties and doubts show, just like a memory, where we have no shield. So as much as this film is about romance or anxiety or breakups or whatever, for me it's always about memory and the intimacy of memory. The way it jumps around, the way it looks like references from the films you love, and the way it makes no narrative sense, but it makes sense to you. It seems like old times. Brooklyn is not expanding! Up until this point, Alan didn't really shoot a script in a real traditional sense. He had a lot of scenes, some through line, a cast, and shot more than he needed. He made sketch comedies. So even though Alan was growing in terms of ambition and better using his influences, the original script, which was unnamed at this point, was not unlike the ones that came before. What would really lift the film is the production and the editing, which were far from straightforward. It actually took Alan six films before he made one mainly in New York, and of course he shot scenes in Los Angeles. And if you include New Jersey, he would not shoot a second of footage more than two hours from his house for another 18 years until 1995's Mighty Aphrodite. Over the course of those five early films, Alan slowly put together a team. Casting director Juliet Taylor was on board and would work with Alan for another 40 years. Ralph Rosenblum was editing, having worked with Alan since his first film. New to an Alan production was Robert Greenhut. He had met Alan on the set of The Front, the 1976 film about the blacklist that starred Alan, which was produced by Greenhut. He joined Alan's team on this film and would work with him for another two decades. Mel Bourne starts a productive run as art director and then a pair that would become an inseparable part of Alan's team for the next two decades, Fern Buchner on makeup and Romain Green on hairstyling. Alan called the two of them the Salad Sisters. But the real immediate and dramatic change in the production quality came with the cinematographer, Gordon Willis. Even if Willis never worked with Alan, his place in cinematic history would be assured. He manned the camera for The Godfather and All the President's Men. Alan had so far worked with people from TV or commercials. Now he had the cinematographer from The Bloody Godfather. Willis was a technical wizard. Over the next few films that they worked on together, Willis brought to life any crazy idea that Alan had. There was an immediate improvement in the shot choices, the framing, the camera movement, the lighting and the colour palette. There's probably essays about all those elements in use in this film. Indoor, outdoor, day or night, it didn't matter. Willis made it look great. He also made it look consistent and everything was cinematic. He taught Alan how to think cinematically. The wizardry helped Alan to openly experiment. Let's just talk about two of the many inventive scenes. Right early on, there's something funny when Alan and Willis stage a scene that seems to be an empty street in New York, but we hear the conversation at a regular volume. Is that a voiceover? Or a point of view shot? And then slowly, two characters, Alvy and Rob, with Rob played by Tony Roberts, walk into the scene. It is Alan's longest take at this point, and it's disorientating compared to the more conventional tracking shot. It's even more jarring for a comedy where quick cuts go with the timing of jokes to help with the laughs. Here, Alan and Willis decide to mix the establishing shot with the meat of the scene. Alan would take this long take stuff much further in the years to come. California, Max. Just forget the hell out of this crazy city. Forget it, Max. We moved to sunny LA. All of show business is out there, Max. No, I cannot. You keep bringing it up, but I don't want to live in a city where the only cultural advantage is that you can make a right turn on a red light. The other innovative scene that Alan would further refine is how he doesn't show who's talking sometimes. There's a scene in Central Park where Alvy and Annie go people watching. This time it's a point of view shot, but again it starts with the audience not knowing what we're seeing. We try to follow who is being talked about, and then we work it out, and it's hilarious. There's also a scene where we just hear voices and see a Long Island sunset. The result is extremely intimate, like someone whispering into your ear. I, th I think you're pretty lucky I came along. Oh, really? 
But those are the more showy shots in a film full of inventive film techniques. I don't think it can be credited to either Alan or Willis completely. Alan had wild ideas, but Willis was also willing to play. Take the simple scene with the teachers on the blackboard. To arrange them on the same blackboard as we pan across is a wonderful little cinematic trick. It doesn't mean much, it's just flair. I love the look of the film. That scene at the pier at sunset is particularly beautiful. And modern contemporary New York has never looked so romantic. Previously, New York on film was Serpico or the taking of Pelham 123 or Mean Streets. The gritty gangs and the dirty roads are not here. This was a very different New York on film. This is a world of rooftop apartments and late night bookshops, of lovers in Central Park and waiting in line at cinemas. And there's also Coney Island childhoods and Long Island holidays. Alan was starting to show the world what he loved about New York and the world would fall in love with it starting here. Right, right. So to get back to what we're discussing, the failure of the country to get behind New York City is, is anti-Semitism. Max, the city is terribly run. But, but I'm not discussing politics or economics. This is foreskin. No, 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 Max. That's a very convenient out. Every time some group disagrees with you, it's because of anti-Semitism. Don't you see the rest of the country looks upon New York like we're, we're left-wing communist Jewish homosexual pornographers? I think of us that way sometimes, and I, and I live here. As well as the returning crew, Alan was still most comfortable working with people he knew on screen. It's amazing that there was a moment when Diane Keaton was not going to play Annie Hall. Alan based the characters on people he knew, but like the other two main women in the film, he was happy to just cast a strong actress in the role. Keaton herself was worried about being typecast. She had already started breaking away from Alan and did more dramatic roles like The Godfather and Looking for Mr. Goodbar. No matter where she wanted to take a career, this was the best performance she ever gave on screen, and she was rightly rewarded with every major acting award. How do you even analyse this performance? That she's likeable, or that she's convincing? It's so much more than that. She's utterly unforgettable decades on. Keaton's range is incredible in this film. She has to be just as random and crazy as the script. She is fragile and broken in the scene with Alvy and the spider, and then later she is a woman on top of the world and in full control when she sings, it seems like old times. And Keaton's singing didn't go unnoticed, the record companies came calling with contracts for albums, all of which Keaton turned down. Seems like old times Having you to walk with Seems like some of her own clothes or put a unique spin on the clothes offered by the wardrobe department. The costumers didn't know what to make of her dress sense and Alan had to tell them to just let her be. Just, you know, let her be to create a fashion movement. Her outfits are incredible and so iconic that they could easily make an identifiable Halloween costume. Department stores would start to advertise clothes for people to have that Annie Hall look. Not that Alan's look didn't become iconic as well. 
Alan's tweed jacket and later his Green Army jacket have been forever tied to him. Tony Roberts is solid as Rob, Alvy's best friend. Roberts is Alan's good friend in real life and his casting here mixes fiction and reality even further. They call each other Max in the film because they call each other Max in real life. They found that yelling out each other's real names in public when they were talking drew attention, so they made up the name Max. Roberts apparently lost his copy of the script at one point and Alan joked that Mel Brooks probably stole it. Max, are we driving through plutonium? Keeps out the alpha rays, Max. You don't get old. The rest of the cast are a series of memorable cameos. Jeff Goldblum, Shelley Duvall, Paul Simon, Christopher Walken, and many more pass through the film, but it's the Alvy and Annie show, especially after it went through the final journey of the film, the painful editing and reshooting process. What happened was that the first cut, which was over three hours long according to some reports, wasn't working. It was too complicated and there was nothing cutting through, so Alan and editor Ralph Rosenblum started to cut the film down. And they threw out a lot. Many scenes that were filmed usually at major expense, work hand. Photos from some of the scenes were actually used in lobby cards promoting the film. I've mentioned some of the scenes that didn't make the final cut that we know about, but mainly Alan cut anything that wasn't something to do with the part of the film that worked best, Alvy and Annie. The two ex-wives had most of their scenes cut. A fourth woman, played by Sigourney Weaver, is reduced to a cameo from far away. The scene visiting the devil was later rewritten for deconstructing Harry. A lot of stuff with Annie's family got cut. A lot more of Los Angeles got cut, including Alvy being in prison. And Alan shot some new scenes to make sense of the film. These deleted scenes are talked about sometimes as the holy grail. The footage apparently exists, but Alan has no interest in releasing any of this stuff. I would love to see it, but I think sometimes people think it might be more fabulous Annie Hall. But it doesn't always sound that way. It doesn't sound like the emotional gut punch that is the film as it stands. It sounds like lots of sketches that detract from the best Alvy and Annie bits. Right now it's only a notion, but I think I can get money to make it into a concept and then later turn it into an idea. It's kind of amazing how much Alan cut and that he was allowed to do so. Alan's contract says that he could do whatever he liked and he had final creative control. And Alan wasn't precious if a scene that took a lot of time and effort to make was cut, especially if it didn't serve the story. Even a scene that was funny would be cut if it didn't serve a higher purpose. And Alan would work like this for the next decade or so. He would shoot more than he needed and cut things down in the edit. He would build in time for reshoots so Alan could make additional changes. And that reshoot time was baked into the contracts of the actors, crew and locations. And he would cut brutally. His films would be short, usually under 90 minutes and sometimes under 80 minutes. The most important new scene was the ending. They simply didn't have one. And one day, on the way to the editing bay, Alan came up with the idea of the flashback of scenes from throughout the film and the joke about the eggs. According to Brickman, who had been unhappy with the film to this point, it saved the film. It was poignant, romantic and cinematic, without backing out into a happy ending. It's still an incredible ending, a huge gut punch. And once again, we return to the theme of memory. After that, it got pretty late and we both had to go, but it was great seeing Annie again. I, I realized what a terrific person she was and, and how much fun it was just knowing her. And I thought of that old joke, you know, the, this, this guy goes to a psychiatrist and says, Doc, uh, my brother's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. And uh, the doctor says, well, why don't you turn him in? And the guy says, I would, but I need the eggs. Well, I guess that's pretty much now how I feel about relationships. You know, they're totally irrational and crazy and absurd. And But... Uh, I guess we keep going through it because uh, most of us need the eggs. 
Also coming together in the editing was the title sequence. Alan had played around with animated titles but loved the simplicity of Igmar Bergman's title cards with a clean white font on black. Alan copied it and with a font that he liked, Windsor Light Condensed. He would add to it and have music and cast names in alphabetical order in later films, but the very recognisable Woody Allen credit sequence starts here. With a couple of exceptions, he would use it for the next 40-something films he would make. The only thing left to work out was the name. For a long time, the film had the title of Anhedonia. The word meant an inability to feel pleasure or comes from the same root as hedonism. No one could even pronounce it, so Alan came up with other titles from the boring, like anxiety, to very silly, like a roller coaster named Desire. But he settled on Annie Hall at the last minute. I can't enjoy anything unless I, unless everybody is. I, you know, if one guy is starving someplace, that's, you know, I, I puts a crimp in my evening. Annie Hall was released on the 20th of April 1977 through United Artists. It was his fifth film for the studio. And it was a sensation on release. Alan was already super famous by this point, but it took him to the next level, joining the pantheon of great directors. I don't know if you would say that Alan was anywhere near what you would call New Hollywood before this film, but that movement in American cinema was rewriting the rules, being led by directors like Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Robert Altman, Mike Nichols, and more. And Alan would find himself caught up in the scene. In short, with Annie Hall, Alan made the jump from Mel Brooks to Martin Scorsese and it justified the creative control that United Artists gave him. It's hard to even start with the critical acclaim afforded to this film. It won just about every major award. It beat Star Wars to Best Picture at the Academy Awards. There were also Best Screenplay, Best Actress and Best Director wins. It was also the last time a comedy won an Academy Award for Best Picture. Famously, Alan didn't attend the ceremony. This was the first awards that he was ever nominated for, and from day one, he rejected the whole scene. He played in his jazz band that night instead and found out the next day that he won when he read it in the paper. He did relent on letting the award wins getting a place in the film's poster after his managers pretty much begged him. Oh, really? They give awards for that kind of music? I put oh, just earplugs. Just forget it, Albie, okay? Let's I, just forget the conversation. They awards. They do nothing but give out awards. I can't believe it. Greatest, greatest fascist dictator, Adolf Hitler. I, of course, love this film, and it's just not going to be fun for me to just gush about it for another 10 minutes. The one thing I do want to say, and always wanted to say, is that it's almost unique as a great breakup film. There's great breakup albums, albums like Rumours and Blood on the Tracks, etc. This is a great breakup film. Really, the only other one that I can think of is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and it's so honest. Alan pours his heart out. This film has more in common with the 70s confessional singer-songwriters than, say, The Godfather. It's like Carole King's Tapestry or Joni Mitchell's Blue. It captured a beautiful, confessional, romantic feeling that doesn't date. And really, everyone loves this film. And not because of the script's cleverness or the groundbreaking filmmaking, the costumes or any mix of single elements. They love it because they love Alvy and Annie. Whatever multicoloured madness Alan envisaged, it transcended it. What Alan says here is fundamental to the human experience. And that it was done by a director at the height of his powers is just a bonus. Hey listen, listen, give me a kiss. Yeah, why not? Because we're just going to go home later, right? And, and uh, there's going to be all that tension, you know, we never kissed before, and I'll never know when to make the right move or anything. So we'll kiss now, we'll get it over with, and then we'll go eat, okay? Oh. Uh, we'll digest our food better. Okay. Okay? So yeah. now we can digest our food, okay? Yeah. Some fun facts about Annie Hall, and there are so many that if you want dozens more, you should check out our book, which we will talk about at the end. But for now, here's a couple. Alan didn't really know the rules of filmmaking and was going with what felt right, and that included the famous split-screen scene where Alvy and Annie are in different psychology sessions and speaking in turn. Both scenes in the split-screen are actually one. Alan and his team built two sets and a real split-screen down the middle. 
That day in Brooklyn was the last day I remember really having a you good know, time. We never have any laughs anymore is the I've, problem. I've been moody and dissatisfied. How often do you sleep together? Do you have sex often? Hardly ever, maybe three times a week. Constantly, I'd say three times a week. There's that wonderful scene at the cinema line where Alan pulls out Marshall McLuhan to prove his point. Life would be great if we could do that, but actually even Alan was unable to use his first choice, Italian director Federico Fellini. And McLuhan apparently took almost 20 takes to nail his part. I heard, I heard what you were saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong. How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. And of course, the winner of the Truman Capote lookalike contest is the actual Truman Capote. In 1976, a year before Annie Hall, he appeared in film for the first time with Murder by Death, which was written by Alan's friend and former colleague, Neil Simon. After Annie Hall, Capote never appeared in a film again. Him? Does he look like yeah, he's the mafia. Linen supply business or cement and contracting, right. I think. <laughs> oh, gee. Just like my mustache waxed. Well, there's the winner of the Truman Capote lookalike contest. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. What do you think of Annie Hall? Is it still a masterpiece? Let me know your thoughts. You can email me, as always, at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. I'd love to know your thoughts on Annie Hall, but also any questions in general about Woody Allen. We'll do a Q&A episode at the end of this season. I've been doing the same old call-out at the end of the podcast for a few episodes now, and I said I'd mix it up. And this is the Annie Hall episode. I reckon it might well be our most popular episode, no matter how many episodes we get to. So if I'm going to point out one way of supporting me, then I want to highlight the Patreon. I've been running the Woody Allen Pages website for almost 10 years now, and I've never had a Patreon before. I've never asked for money before. Yes, there's costs like hosting and the time to put everything together. It's not much, but I want to be able to keep it going for as long as possible. So I'm doing the Patreon with this podcast. So people who have followed us forever will get something extra if they sign up. This podcast for one. If you do sign up, you'll get some stuff. I'll do shout outs for people and you'll get some ebooks. We've got digital versions of our books, the Woody Allen Film Guides. You'll get a digital copy of the podcast scripts as well. And I'm looking to do polls and other fun things in season two. I'm also absolutely open to ideas. If you follow another Patreon, especially a podcast Patreon where they're doing cool stuff, let me know. I'd love to know how to do this right. So if you'd like to support this podcast and the website and support Woody Allen, then help us out. I'm pretty grateful for the people who have supported me so far and you can support us for just $5 a month. That's the price of a very exotic coffee every month. Find out more on our Patreon page. The link is in the bio. You can also support us by buying paperback versions of our books. There's also prints and t-shirts of the podcast artwork which feature characters from 49 Woody Allen films. But a great no-cost way of supporting us is leaving us a review. Five stars will do wherever you found this podcast. And of course, telling a friend, helping us spread the word. As usual, check out the website for the latest Woody Allen news at woodyallenpages.com and find us everywhere on social media with the username Woody Allen Pages. Next week, we look at Woody Allen's tribute to New York City, the real one. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I, I forgot my mantra. <laughs>